Hello and welcome to this, the 36th edition of the Cricket Web Podcast, a podcast by and for fans of cricket all around the world. My name is Jake, better known on the board as How's At, and with me is another distinguished member of the Cricket Web Forums. Please welcome Marco, better known as Quincy Webster. Hello everybody. And we are united in the notion that neither of us really care or watch about the Ashes, so let's uh, talk about something else. Uh, well, what about New Zealand and the West Indies? West oh Indies yeah, let's get on to that. <laughs> what about Sri Lanka? You can draw, they bet well. But um, <laughs> unfortunately, um, I've been pretty much watching only the Ashes, so I think that's um, we might all have to talk about for this, um, which I'm going to presume is a much shorter podcast than usual then. So, how about that New Zealand series? <laughs> Neil Wagner. Now, um, now there's a ball lot. Before we, before we do talk about, inevitably, the big series that's on at the moment down in New Zealand, we are going to go through a little bit of feedback from our previous podcast, which was our actual, actual Ashes preview edition. Budger was there and he says, yay, a podcast. I'm guessing the 11 is surprising Ashes call-ups. Now, I'm not entirely sure now whether people uh, do successfully guess the 11 after or before they've listened to the podcast. But Bajed has come on within two minutes of it being posted, which I think is worthy of some praise. I think I think they were guessing. I think that that's become now tradition just to guess before listening to the podcast. Uh, that's what I presume. I mean, I don't know for certain. It was a solid guess anyway. I'd like to think that people do do that and treat it as probably their largest achievement of the week when they get it right. Um, Starfighter says, uh, Charles Davis looked at the declare to give a few overs at the end of the day strategy. So this is something we've talked about now in the follow-up section of the last four podcasts in a row. So thank you, Starfighter. Um, He said, uh, Charles Davis found that there wasn't really a strong trend in either direction. The chances of a wicket was slightly raised for three to four overs, but lowered for five to six, probably due to small sample error. I think it's something done more to seem positive and try and assert psychological pressure, which statistically doesn't work, rather than through actual merit. I agree with Starfighter. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we agree on that. Um, Burgie says, disappointing that in all the keeper discussion there was no mention of hashtag Bert Mentum. Uh, any idea who is referencing? That? I, don't, I don't know. Is that um, one of the state keepers? Is it uh, Bank? No, it wasn't Bank. Um, Marco, this is why you're this- here. Uh, well, I, I was thinking, well, there's a lot of keepers. I mean, it's not Wade or Payne or um, Neville. I mean, that's about half the keepers. Um, I've no idea that because um, uh, Chris Hartley was surprised. I actually have no idea the Queensland keeper is. And South Australia is, oh, let's put my tongue, the South Australian keeper. But, um, yeah, I've drawn a blank on that. So I've edit this out and I'll just put in, um, fill in, put it, Putting my voice to say, oh, we know who that is. So okay, right. We'll, it's all right. We'll edit it in later, right? Um, <laughs> but Birdie also says that he enjoyed Spark losing his shit at the Sean Marsh selection. Which, yeah, I oh, jeez! Um, <laughs> I did too. Oh no! Um, <laughs> A shame Spark isn't here to um, comment on it. Um, how he feels about the selection now. The thing is, we knew, we kind of knew this would happen about Sean Marsh. We know he's going to get 100 at some point. Now, fortunately, hopefully, we can look forward to the uh, succession of ducks that's going to be happening from this point forward. Starfighter is also about to say, Adders won't be happy on your opinions on Jimmy's likely effectiveness. Do you remember your comments on Jimmy's effectiveness? Yes, I was, um, I said he'd, I didn't, I didn't think he'd um, succeed at all. And, well, um, 
well, as I say, for a test and a half, I was pretty close to the mark. And he, um, well, and he got his best ever figures in Australia in the second inning. So that, that ended that. But we'll see how he goes to the rest of the series. Yeah, bowlers are allowed to, I think, go one match between Fifers and still be considered doing pretty well, I think. And um, he's been, um, and he's, uh, he's got his best ever sledging um, incidents in uh, one test, so he's, he's leading that way too. He's, he's breaking records everywhere. VCS says, was Mike Whitney that bad? I remember him bowling well against India in 92. No clue how he went against England. And Burgie comes in to clarify that we weren't really talking about bad players, we were talking about weird selections. Well, just, yeah, I don't know if I was going to the last podcast, but um, Whitney took 11 wickets in a test against India in 91 92. In fact, he took, I think it was 7 for 27. Um, so he had his moments, um, and that was obviously for the best test of his career. He played, yeah, he played that was uh, four, te- four or five tests in that series, probably took about 20 wickets. So that was, you know, he played pretty well then. Uh, Silly Cow Corner is with us. He says, nice work, guys. I love the concept of triangular T20s and double headers. Uh, also, I was thinking about a triangular test being something new in countries where the market is huge. India, England, and Australia. Uh, we'll post details so they get to the end of the podcast. Interestingly, triangular test series is not new. It was done in 1912 between England, Australia, and South Africa in England, uh, and then has never been done for the last 100 years. Which surprises me. Um, I think somebody would have had a crack at it at some point. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I do have heard about that. I'm um, actually one of the. Um, yeah, I, I think that was considered a failure at the time. It didn't take off, and I think the closest we've done since I think in the late nineties wasn't there the Asia Cup where like Pakistan, India, and Sri Lanka sort of played. Well, it was I don't know if it was it was sort of like that. I mean, I wouldn't know the full details, but it seemed like that was like a round. Robert test series they played sort of took turns. I mean, uh, that might be somewhat similar, but yeah, it's like it's yeah. never really been followed up. You'd have thought at that time in the 90s, actually, that was where ODI cricket was at its sort of peak over, over test. So it's interesting that that's the time that they had some test championships rather than the, the modern Asia Cup. I guess I'll try to innovate because I guess they felt like, you know, need, need, test cricket needs a lift. Um, yeah, maybe. And that was, I, I don't know the full story, but I, I don't really, I, you know, I don't really know that much about it, but I remember it occurring about 99, um, thereabouts, but it um, might be something worth investigating. Not Mackenzie posts that Whitney bowled 44 overs, still talking about Mike Whitney, who was obviously the, the, the breakout feature of last week's podcast. Um, <laughs> four for 124 in the fifth test and 32 overs, one for 122 in the sixth test and 81, which I wouldn't put down as terrible, more as circumstances of selection qualifying him here. Uh, he also comments about Wally Edwards and links to a video of the highlights from the 1974-75 Ashes first test at Bridburn. It just shows him getting bold. It's quite good that we have that video just available. So that's uh, that's in the Robert Linda archive. Uh, he's got all six tests. And I remember I used to have VHS tapes of those six tests because they um, sold them in the early 2000s. So it's like about almost 45 minutes to each test and they're all up there. So they will have, you know... I know you're not for England supporters, but uh, for any cricket, other cricket fans, it's probably worth watching that series. You know, it's a fascinating archive. Um, S. Kennedy is posted twice, which is interesting because it marks a landmark moment in the Cricket Web podcast, which is where I've had to take somebody off ignore in order to read the feedback. 
don't, sorry, this is I don't know the history of this, so I can't help can't fill in anything on this. Uh, no, I don't know. I've never put anybody on ignore. Uh, so S. Kennedy is here to talk to defend Scott Borthwick, which is a bold position to take. Um, he says he was brought in as a leg spinner and not a batsman, which yeah we did we did talk about. I know we played him at number three in the eleven, but that was just being silly buggers, really. Um, he also talks about how at that time, to be fair to him, he had uh, the batting average uh, it was wasn't really what it is now. Because he's made some runs playing for Wellington, made some runs playing in the county championship. He says uh, he took thirty four wickets at thirty three point five two. In the uh, in the season in England beforehand, so yeah, he, he had some had some good run as a as a leg spinner. So fair point, and also and he concedes that since his move to Surrey, his form has plummeted, which you know is, is a valuable moral of the story. Really, don't ever ever move to Surrey; it just never helps. S. Kennedy also comments that Wayne Larkins is an absolute legend, so I think that's really erased any goodwill that he might have built up with the previous post. Um. <laughs> Tang says, especially on D wing. And <laughs> what, what does that mean? I remember reading that. What, does, what was that? Um, is it's, that a code? I don't know what that meant exactly. In in prisons in the UK, you have uh, you have wings. Oh, uh, so it's suggesting that Wayne Larkins made a name for himself in prison because he certainly didn't do it in cricket. Well, I, th- I thought he avoided prison. I actually, no, I remember that because actually, reading he, he got in big trouble, but he sort of. Just escape, or maybe did maybe to prove I don't know, but I know he got some post cricket career. He got some, yeah, I think a scamming scammed at the, some a person out of a lot of money. I think that was, yeah, it was a bit bit sad to read. Adders is says is about to listen to it now, and also forewarns any uh, dissing of Jimmy will lead him to be on the warpath, as we discovered in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Vogue says just giving it a listen now, which is nice to hear. Um, an overrated sanity is with us saying nice to see you back would love it if the three of you did comms for the ashes too uh, comms for the ashes is, is really hard work at the moment so I don't think that's going to involve me anytime soon but it'd be interesting if uh, other people get on board uh, Stephen is with us he says love the chat fellas agree wholeheartedly about a lot of what was said thank you very much he says he has to agree with the idea that tour matches are fine as they are provided the surface being played on is representative of the likely test match surfaces I don't think the quality of the opposition matters too much the ones that annoy me are when a side prepares raging green tops for the tour matches and then prepares turning tracks for the actual games, or vice versa. Yeah, I got, that does sound to me complaining. I was, just, I was actually listening to a podcast um, just a few days back at the Crick Info one where Mark Butcher was saying when he toured Australia, like when they played in WA, they always played tour matches there and it was like a really soft, you know, slow track for the tour match. And then we got to the test match, it just flew and, you know, sort of... Uh, you know, that was just par for the course. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I think England are playing in WA now, and uh, we'll see how that prepares for the uh, Perth test uh, coming up next Thursday. Uh, Uppercut says, finally got listening to this during the first test. You do a really good job. Thank you very much. He also says, already finding myself refreshing the feed to see if you've got another one up. And, you know, I don't think that worked out very well for him. Well, I look forward to this one then. <laughs> It's just been sat there constantly refreshing his phone for a fortnight. <laughs> uh, so there's a couple more comments about commentary, but yeah, I, I don't know how that's going to go. Uh, if someone else is running it, then that'd be probably the way to do it. So there's uh, that's all. I mean, that was posted in the Ashes subby because it was an Ashes preview edition, and so it got a lot of feedback and a lot of comments from people who might not have always listened to the podcast. So that's pretty nice. 
Uh, with that in yeah, mind, it's probably the most most number of responses in, in a podcast thread, I'd say, because it seems like, I don't know, you've done it longer than me, but that was um, a lot of responses there, so that's good, de- to, good to see. It's definitely from the most number of people. Yes. There have been threads where, which have gone on a bit with a bit of back and forth, but definitely the, the most feedback we've got from individual uh, different listeners, um, which just goes to show that talking about the Ashes really does, uh, really does have benefits for the amateur podcaster. Indeed. With that in mind, let's talk about uh, West Indies in New Zealand. Well, that's yeah, Jason Holder. Jason Holder getting suspended for it. Oh, okay. Well, maybe. Um, well, maybe before we get to that, uh, I haven't been watching any of it. Unfortunately uh, for you, I've been watching the Ashes, so that might be the main thing I will be talking about today. Oh, good. I guess I can start. Um, by a comment you made in the last podcast, which mm. I think sums up this series, is that you were talking about the batting, and you said, you know, you couldn't see England winning because you just couldn't see them scoring enough runs, and that's what's occurred. I think that's the defining issue in this series. I know there's been, you know, England the issues of England, they're bowling and this and that, but at times you can see them being good enough. Their pace bowling has worked quite well, not all the time, but they've had their certainly had their moments, but they're batting. Especially after day one in Brisbane, um, yeah, it's not not up to, not up to an Australian conditions. It's just, in fact, and I commented on the um, on a thread on, on one of the, on the forums that I would I think this might be the weakest English batting line of the tour straight since eighty two eighty three. It, it just looks really limit limit limited. It's just you know just a real lack of quality there. Yeah. Um, Obviously, Stokes missing hurts, but you know that top four or five—it's you know once you know the all-rounders and there's a bit of depth there. But that top four or five is really, really has been exposed in Australia, and um, I just can't see them. As you said in the previous part, I just can't see them scoring enough runs to win a test. There's no hundreds. That's the difference between the two sides. No hundreds from England. Uh, yeah, they only scored 100 um, in the previous time they toured Australia. Which was Ben Stokes in Perth, um, and I, don't, I think if they had a hundred partnership, if they made, I don't think they did one in Adelaide. I think there was one in Brisbane on the first day, but they haven't hardly had any partnerships. No, you know they've had lots of twenties and thirties, and you know it's just yeah. What can you say? I mean, obviously they're facing a very good attack. Um, you know, really quality attack, but they've been. You know, very disappointing. Um, I, I, yeah, they, they, their first innings, obviously they scored 300, you know, and even then, they, that was a bit of a waste because they they had such a good start at base. But on day two, they basically just folded, and that was some bad signs. But I thought, I just, that second innings of Brisbane, you know, when they barely made 200, that was saying, Jesus, they're not up to standard. Because that, that Brisbane pitch on the fourth day, I'd say in Australian conditions, you wouldn't, you couldn't get better conditions to bat on than that pitch because it was virtually no swing, reverse or conventional. The the bounce was true, you know, it was a good pace. You know, if you got in, you could play your shots, and yeah, it had they pretty much everything in their favour, and they couldn't handle it. They just couldn't handle it. They just and you know, yeah. So nope. we'll see what happens, but it looks pretty grim for it, the rest it, of the series. It, it, it does, and. It's not like England are, are useless. It's not like they're getting absolutely belted. It's just they're not good enough 
to demonstrably make consistent runs, unless somebody puts to, somebody like Joe Root happens to put together an amazing innings, which he does maybe once or twice a year. Um, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Uh, and th- one thing that I do want to point out is that there's been a lot of talk about lower order and how uh, people like uh, Cummins have uh, have made some runs for Australia, and like they've, they've, England have got partly the way through Australia's batting order, but somebody's been uh, been in their way, and the lower order have put together some runs, getting them past 300, 350, 400. Um, it's, it is the batsman doing it. You know, we can talk about like the 20 or so that uh, Pat Cummins made, or the 30 or so that they made, compared to someone like um, uh, like uh, Ball or Anderson or Broad not making runs. It's irrelevant, because the reason why uh, that happened is because throughout the first test, you had Steve Smith at one end, consistently not getting out, which meant that half the time when you're bowling to the lower order, you're bowling to an actual batsman who's on 100. And that obviously extends those partnerships and makes it easier for the lower order to bat. The same thing happened in the second test with Sean Marsh being uh, not out and guiding through the lower order. If England had one batsman at one end not out, while someone like Overton or whoever is at the other end, then yes, they're going to have partnerships too. England need runs from the batsman if they're going to do if they're going to win a test. Uh, that's that's true. I mean, although um, you know, I think England's best partnership in Adelaide was between Wokes and Overton. Actually. Yeah. I think they, yeah, that was that was the irony. They um, all the top order, like you said, made twenties and thirties. Yeah, you know, couldn't and make then, any more than there was actually Overton top scored. On, yeah, on but debut. imagine if imagine if Ober, Overton and Wokes are having those making those runs separately in partnership with someone like Root or um, or Cook at the other end. Then oh, England, yeah, then England are getting four hundred. That's how four hundred plus scores happen. No, that that is true. Uh, I, you know, so that's a very valid point. But also, England haven't helped in the structure of the batting order. I mean, it is this is a bit of an ongoing theme for me because I've seen him with a couple other sides. But that, I think he's got the third best average in the team. And John Be- Johnny Bairstow was coming in eight in yeah. the second to Adelaide. Is that just it, pure idiocy? Well, no, I mean, not really. How, no, yeah, not really. Just, because no, it's not because Johnny Bairstow is a good keeper batsman, and good keeper batsman can bat at seven, right? And if you have a night watchman, the good keeper batsman comes in at eight. That's standard. That's completely conventional. Uh, the only thing that you do differently, probably, is bat uh, Bairstow at six and Moen Ali at seven, because Bairstow is a slightly better batsman than Moen Ali. In fact, I would say he's a more adaptable batsman than Moen Ali. Um, but if you are already used to England's batting order being Stokes at six, Bairstow at seven, which makes perfect sense, then Stokes being out means, okay, maybe you bat Moen Ali at six because he's an all-rounder too. I don't think there's anything particularly out of sorts there. It's just probably not the decision I would make, but it's not something that makes a big difference. But, but the, the thing is, the top, I mean, it's pretty obvious, and I'm thinking that there isn't exactly a lot of quality in the top four or five. So, it looks, that's the problem. It's not like there's, you know... Um, Kevin Peterson, um, you know, averaging 50 in number four, or, um, you know, Andrew Strauss and Alistair Cook, you know, are both averaging in the 40s. There is a lack of quality there. So yes. that makes his, um, his being so low that seven just, you know, and I'm not the only one. I've been mean, a lot of people are commentating this in the media here just up, you know, when he was virtually stranded in Adelaide, you know, the last week and he, mm. got, and he actually was playing. He was the only one on the final day who made any runs at all. Um, you know, and everyone wickets fell around him, and I, don't, I just can't afford. I look, I get it. He's a keeper batsman, but 
they just can't afford him to be at seven or even, you know, maybe six, but they can't afford him in this lineup. There's just not enough quality there. Well, they need him maybe four or five. And uh, I mean, there's been suggested that he give up the gloves. I think folks, um, that maybe that might be, I know that's, you know, could robbing Peter pay Paul, as I say, but they've got to throw something. Um, yeah, fair may, may as well. I mean, I don't think there's not a lot of difference. Mate. If, if you um, are, have a bad middle order, which England do, especially if you put Joe Root at three because that's he's your best batsman, then you need to construct a middle order. You don't just give up and use someone from the lower order. That's turning a potential strength into a weakness. If you put, move Johnny Bairstow up to four or five, then either one of the batsmen that you've decided is not as good as him uh, moves down the order, in which case it's pretty much the same batting lineup, just with um, things the problem in a slightly different place. Or you bring in uh, Ben Folks, in which case you're saying, this guy Ben Folks has to be a better batsman than the people you're dropping. And if that was the case, wouldn't he already be in the side? Well, I know, look, I know it doesn't look, that's probably very logical, but England needs something because as it stands, I just can't see them. I just can't see them winning. I know maybe, look, maybe all the options doesn't matter anyway. I think even Trevor Bayless in his comments, that would change the side because I was admitting that. But, you know, the ashes are on the line. I think for Perth, they've got to try something. I mean, yeah, um, but Bowen Alley, boy, he's been very disappointing. I mean, he can play at seven. I think he's, you know, so just maybe just try something there. And all right, best though at six. I mean, at least that, at the very least. Um, he's got to be in the top six. All right, but I mean, you know, I know there's a debate over Joe Root at three. I, I guess what I, I gather from what you're saying that if you move Joe Root up to three, the middle order looks even worse, perhaps. But, uh, you know, Maybe shifting deck chairs on the Titanic, but I think they could, you know, if, if they could make some changes to make it a bit better. They've, you know, maybe I don't know, like something on left field, um, like Darwood Milan. I mean, he may look very limited as a batsman. He did fresh, really fought hard. Maybe try him mm. at seven, as somebody can stick around, maybe with a tough something like that. I'm just throwing it up, but it, I know it's look, it's hard, but yeah. I think they've got to make some changes to the batting lineup. Sometimes you have to, I mean, you can think about, sometimes the technical, the tactical um, ideas that get thrown around need to be clear. There is a specific purpose to this particular thing. And yeah, right, maybe there is some evidence of looking at the batting order, but I don't think looking at the batting order makes makes much of a difference here at all. I think it genuinely has to be whoever is in the top four, including Cook and Rue, who have not been as good as they should be, in Cook's case especially, um, somebody has to be making runs. Some of those people who are the best batsmen in the side need to come in and make 100. Maybe that is Johnny Bairstow. That might be something worth trying out. But Maybe try his opener. I don't think that's a good idea. No, I think Stoneman is, Stoneman is okay. He's not, he's not ideal. He's, not a, he's never going to be a world-class player. But I think he's okay. And that's about... You can have a couple of batsmen in a side who are okay. But you need them to make hundreds. And you need them to score runs. And if they're not going to stand up and do it, the team's not going to win. It's as simple as that. Somebody's got to find a way of, of actually batting, not just constantly look at personnel and order and, and talk about that as though that's the difference. It needs to be about these guys doing what they've done before. Well, yeah, well, they've got to find something because it's, um, you know, on and off the field, it's becoming a bit of a mess. Oh, off the field, it's a complete joke and it's, 
um, this idea of like the side within with an image problem and and uh, sort of, none none of that would be being talked about if they were winning games. Um, yeah, and um, I mean, I just said you know we were just discussed uh, before we start this podcast. Now we've got Ben Duckett, who's is he in the line squad, or I mean, he's been dropped from the tour match. He was going to play, but he was left. He had apparently, according to George Turbill and Crick Info, he was, was a bit more. Deep. He was saying that he got an altercation with an England teammate through a glass of alcohol over him. I mean, who knows what the you know? And he was as he as is his want. He was sort of playing down. Well, you know, if this was England playing well, it wouldn't be an issue. But well, the facts are they're not going well, and it just. You know, it is looking a real mess um, at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, where they go from here. And just, I was just thinking, you, I asked you about James Vincent in the last podcast. And yeah. It's sort of, well, he's got the highest score by any Englishman this series, so you've yeah. got to give him that, and it was run out. So um, who knows, he might have got that century. But uh, just my observation, I never really seen him bat before this series. I mean, even in that 83 he got, I, I saw him play... Um, a few times a back foot, so that back foot cup, not so much a cover job, that push when he goes off a off length, when he goes on the back foot and just pushes it through cover, so a back foot cover shot. And that was on when the pitch was a bit slowish on the first day. And I remember even thinking at the time, oh, okay, this is sort of a shot on a fast pitch where he's going to get fanned out. And I think he played, you know, and he got it through on that day. But since then, he's been playing those sort of loose shots, um, just, you know, just. I mean, I think everybody, everything's been people have been saying about him has come to true that he doesn't know how to build in innings. He sort of can play a couple of nice shots, but he just gets out. He just and as a number three, um, that's a bit concerning. I mean, you know, he might as well stick with him for the series and see how he goes. But yeah, he's sort of after a bright start, he's sort of um, gone back to form. It seems right. If we are going to talk about the Ashes, can we talk about James Anderson? Sure. So James Anderson is a great player. Um, you need. Yes. There is not a set of conditions that Anderson requires to bowl well, but when he has that set of conditions, he invariably does. That is not something that you spit at. That is something that you treasure. You know the thing about James Anderson. I think this comes through on their forums that obviously he's one of those players that English England cricket fans, Australian cricket fans, have very opposite views of. Um, that Australian don't really, you know, don't rate him that highly, despite his outstanding record in country by country miles. England's league wicket taker, and obviously England cricket fans have seen him perform, especially in England, like a world beater for years and one Test series. And he's had a great, actually, he's had a great two twenty seventeen. I think. I think he's special last six months. Oh yes. So just thank for that at least. And I, you know, I think because he's a bit of, you know, especially in the second half of his career, you know, he's quite a verbal. You know, just I guess what he's done when he did that, he's well known as a sledger. You know, and then he did that, and he invented that article. He was complaining about Australia's sledging. It was almost almost like he's trying to rile the Australian fans and team up because he knew I'm probably you know saying, oh, what about him? How he sledges? Yeah, that's that's something. I think he was almost, almost taking the um, that that, no, that notion is completely foreign to Australian supporters, of course. <laughs> Yeah, I was shocked. I'd never seen sledging on the field before before he did it. I know. Um, and, you know, he's, I think he's taken that on, maybe as a senior player, you know, very senior player, that being the main antagonist um, in sort of way. I don't know if you saw it, but I saw in Adelaide on night one with Smith, there was this sort of 
bizarre um, battle where he was building at a very short mid-on, yeah. and Steve Smith was like on that side of the wicket, running on the wicket, and they were just almost trying to needle each other, and Smith was running in front of him, and you know, I think Anderson was in his element there, and you know, I think that was part of the group thing. But he's really, you know, taken taken that up, and I okay, that's why you know it's a bit like Broad and Peterson is that, um, you know, sort of not respecting him. Um, I guess because also he, you know, um, his record in Australia's great, which uh, Shane Warne seems to want to mention every few minutes um, in the Adelaide <laughs> match. It was a bit of a theme of his commentary. He might come, he might come up later his commentary. Yeah, I mean, he never, he's always got something new. He never talks about intent all the time, that's for <laughs> sure. Uh, but he never brings that up in the first 10 minutes of a day if he's on the opening spell. He never does that. But uh, I, I just think, yeah, maybe it's a bit of jealousy of the way Anderson is. And, um, you know, maybe because he's uh, um, never, his record in Australia isn't as good as in England. And we sort of, you know, but I guess, look, most top players don't perform in every country. I mean, Anyway, you know, like obviously Shane Warne in India never really had a great record there, really at, at all. And, and you know, if you say, were Merle, Merle in Australia, I mean, that was probably far, but he, he couldn't buy wicket in Australia when he toured here. Even though he was his leading all-time wicket taker, I think still. So, yeah, I just a bit of a jealousy, and you know, maybe it's good. I think on the forums to needle the England fans who rate him so highly, um, you know, nicknames for Anderson. And Anderson has had one terrible tour of Australia, um, and one pretty ordinary one, one fantastic one, uh, and one which seems to be going okay at the moment. So you know that's that's a pretty that's that's a mixed bag of an output. It's not like he's failed in Australia. It's that's a bit of a myth. Uh, the c- country that he genuinely has failed in, for some strange reason, is South Africa, which usually gets played off as a as a uh, as a seam bowling friendly place. Yeah, you're right. I mean, obviously, twenty oath. Um 2006 or seven, he was you know, probably not up to up to it at that point in time. He was no, too and, that's, his and, and, and that's true regardless of where he was playing. If you're talking about Anderson of ten years ago, he wasn't a Test match bowler at that point. Yeah, and yeah, it is true. For 2010-11, he was excellent. He, um, you know, he, he never got a big bag, but like he never, he always took wickets, pretty much three or four wickets every innings, and he was hard to get away. And he seemed to just. I think with a kookaburra, you just in a mask, just wobbling it a bit, just keep not, you know, it wasn't hooping around corners like it would England, but he was just swinging enough and the right length, so he was always at the batsman. So that was very impressive. And at 20th, actually, I was funny, I've been watching a few of the highlights of, um, got some discs of that series, and he had his moments. You know I mean, he actually, yeah, I was thinking, was he that, that bad? I mean, yeah, but he actually did bowl well at times. Um, and again, actually, this is a bit like this series. The English bowling at times is pretty good. Um, on twenty thirds, their batting was a problem. Yeah, um, and that's and, that's pretty much the case now. Yeah. So yeah, you're right in saying, but I think it's just almost to stick it up um, Anderson because he's, he's become almost like a pantomime mm. uh, figure, that villain almost. You know, just say, oh look at his, you know, Shane Warne and every opportunity brings up up his average in Australia, it was like 36 and home and away 26 and then, you know, sort of stuff like that that was a constant theme of this test even when he was taking five wickets he was almost like um, <laughs> a sarcastic prose but anyway yeah. but he, no, he bowled very well um, almost got almost broke his leg too trying to take a catch um, 
uh, had a very good um, innings. It had a bit of bad luck in the first innings, as we said, with a couple of turned, uh, overturned LBWs that could have been crucial. So We ought to talk about Australia at least a little bit before we move on. Um, uh, yes. One, one thing I have to say is that I don't think this is um, a team full of great Australian players. I think this is a team with probably two great players, Steve Smith and, I think, at least Josh Hazelwood. Um, who, out of all of the 93 different Australian bowlers to have been labelled as the new McGrath, actually has a decent chance of doing that. But what it does have, this Australian team, is players who are capable of sporadic, excellent performances, enough so in Aust- which have become more frequent in Australia to the point where somebody is going to stand up. Nobody expected Sean Marsh to be a star of this series, and I don't really expect him to do anything else for the rest of the series, but I knew he would make 100 at some point, or at least I knew he could make 100 at some point. Well, the thing about Sean Marsh um, in um, probably both innings, he's looked so assured. He's looked probably the most of any batsman in either side. He's looked very compact and in control and you know just sort of very good leaving of the deliveries. And he's been very patient in both, actually, in the, his innings in Brisbane. Or that was a poor innings in Brisbane where he supported Smith. He was sorry about four for not many um, when he came in. And he helped um, Stubbs to turn things around. And of him, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a quick innings. I don't think he's an especially fast-scoring batsman, but he really was patient and, you know, just took his time. And, you know, it's been, I've uh, got to hand it to him because it's a very controversial selection. I mean, I don't think he's been any more line cricketer, except maybe Shane Watson in the last 10 or 15 years amongst Australian fans and Sean Marsh, but he's really, you know, proven um, decision to pick him over Maxwell. Um, just but yeah, just on Australia, I mean, it is true. They, look, in home conditions, I mean, I agree, this isn't a particularly one of the strongest sides of this century by, by a long way, actually. I think it's probably one of the weaker ones, but uh, you think since England beats Australia in 2010-11. Let's talk more about that. Side, well, um, <laughs> unfortunately, I'm going to make it point. But the, actually, you really, that the only side to win tests, I'm pretty sure this is correct, uh, against Australia and Australia, South Africa, who on two separate tours. Like, I don't think any other side has won a test, let alone a series. It is exceptionally hard um, to win, you know, be competitive, even against moderate Australian sides. I think that's just the way it is. And... Um, it just says he's a great player. Well, I say in, in Australian conditions, I put David Warner as a great player. I know he's been a disappointment outside of Australia, but in Australian conditions, he's a colossus. And he actually hasn't been at his best this series, but he's still been a, a factor. Josh Hazelwood, uh, yeah, I, I know he gets races at a lot. I need, he actually hasn't had that great a series. That, was, that final day was crucial, but until then, he'd been a bit up and down. He'd actually had a bit of a... I guess if you want to push the McGrath comparison, I, I think he, he struggles a fair bit in Asia, which even McGrath, McGrath took wickets everywhere. I mean, he, even in Asia, it was just a remarkable thing about him. So he's still got a way to go. But in Australian conditions, yeah, you could say he's, um, you know, maybe not quite to the level, but who was to McGrath, but he's certainly a good um, replacement. But yeah, it, it isn't a great Australian side. I mean, the, uh, the bowling tag is excellent, um, although they've been, you know... Uh, Mitchell Starks, I don't think he'll ever be a great uh, test bowler like he's a one-day bowler. He's very up and down. He's a bit, you know, he sort of can be very ratty. But he, he takes wickets, you know, he's, he destroys tails. So his record 
record's decent. Yeah, the Australian batting, this is a... And that's, that's a frustrating thing for England, I guess. That Australia's batting isn't that great, but it's good enough against a single lineup because it's got holes in it. I mean, uh, you look at Bancroft, he's, he's looked pretty good, but there's some technical issues there and um, only one standard in so far. You know, uh, Peter Hanscom, actually, he, he looks the worst of any batsman. I'm, I'm, I'm suspect he's almost going to be out of sight. He's tech, it's like he's been found out um, that he's he just pitched the ball up to him, basically, and you know, just on the stumps or just outside off, and he's almost like he just keeps playing and missing, and he can't score a run in front of the wicket. He's basically cutting through third man. He's like his main shot, basically his, his stock scoring shot, and he's been... Looked horribly out of sorts, so I think he'll get dropped for um, Perth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, like you know, Warner's been a bit. He's been. I find it actually interesting with the Australian batting overall. I think it's what's been the most impressive. I think they've been very. They've actually scored quite slowly by recent their historical recent standards, and I think it's almost like they've played within their limitations. They haven't tried to dominate the English bowling attack. They've almost been very watchful. And, you know, obviously that's what Smith and Marsh did. Both Smith and Marsh's centuries are very slow by Australian standards. And they've almost, um, I, I think England might have even outscored them in terms of pace this series. And even even in that Brisbane test, when Australia chased 170 without losing a wicket, I, it was funny, um, people were wondering, oh, Australia going to try and finish this off tonight, you know, really score fast, go for big sixes and water there. And they didn't really go for that. It was almost like saying, no, we, we're going to take our time. We'll wait, you know, 45 minutes. We're not going to rush. We're going to show, in, you know, England that we can outbat you. We can bat more time. We've got more discipline. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, that's been a bit of a turnabout. It's not been through aggression. It's been they've stuck it out. You know, as you said, uh, England's route can only make a 50 or so, whereas Smith and Marsh make centuries, and that's been the difference. Yeah. I wonder, even despite that, even despite the fact that Australia have been, you know, more consistent with their batting, they've been much more disciplined, like you say, they've been the side that have been striking at 40, 50, rotating the strike, rather than people like Vince or Milan trying to constantly push things through the offside and score boundaries. Um, they've been the side that uh, that is have better concentration, so they don't have their best player getting out for 58. They've been the side that have been more rigid with bowling line and bowling length and consistently threatening the batsman as opposed to trying to fire it through as uh, as fast as they can or try to bend the ball around corners. They have been the more consistent professional side and it's re- a bit like, if you do want to mention 2010-11, to 11, a bit like what uh, England did to Australia, although not quite as uh, quite as extreme. Yeah, um, just seeing out, yeah, it was that, that, that English bowling attack of... Um or when they got together, Trenlet, Anderson and Brisbane, I don't think any of them got five wickets in innings, but they all contributed. They worked worked as a team. And, you know, um, with Graham Swan chipping in with, um, you know, some wickets here and there. Yeah, that, 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 I mean, that's obviously, I mean, obviously by the results, but that I think that's that tour is famous not only for its on-field success for England, but also I think off-field. It was a very disciplined, smooth, you know, Andy Flower was at his peak. It was very, you know, Strauss and Flowers. They just seemed to have the team under control and they really were professional. And, you know, three three victories by innings is testament to that. And, um, you know, we, for, when sides can't beat Australia for 20 years in Australia, can't win a test. And they did three times by that in the summer. 
they were just a very and I, I mean of course they had the flair in Peterson you know and the stubbornness of Collingwood and you know the counter-attacking Matt Pry it was a very they just seemed to complement each other very well and even actually with England's bowling I felt even though it's bowling it doesn't they don't seem to really work as a group it's almost a bit you know it's, they don't I don't know they don't seem like um, when if Anderson or Broad play bowl with a spell then you saw ball or wokes they don't they seem to be trying not for the team by me being disciplined they're almost trying to do all the wickets themselves and they just let go of the pressure and that happened I think in Adelaide first things Adelaide and Brisbane they just didn't quite go here as well um, probably, probably the biggest difference between the two sides is in the spin department and much more so than we thought because I mean we expected I think we all expected the Lion to outball Mo and Ali but uh, Lyon, uh, he's, he's actually been the player of the series for mine. I mean, because, not just, you know, his stats are excellent, but he has been, he's actually covered up for a few of the issues he's Australian pacemen when, like, Hazelwood or Stark have been bit off their game. Because he's been both a strike bowler and a stock bowler. He's bowled long, very long spells. He's barely gone for over two and over. And it's not like he's been defensive. He's been aggressive and trying to take wickets for long, you know, bowling for an hour, hour and a half. I mean, he, this is his, he's clearly this is in the form of his career. He's, and I think his success in India and Bangladesh has given the belief now to be a leader of the attack, which he, he thought himself as a support bowler previously. I mean, he's been absolutely remarkable. I mean, they, England are just stymied by him, especially the left-handers. And in contrast, um, Mo and Ali, I mean, he got, I think he got Usman Kawaja in his first over of the Brisbane test. He, he actually... You know, I've forgotten about mentioning him. I mean, um, but yeah, he's, he's probably against off-spin uh, well-known. And I thought, well, you know, it was McCoy, could be, I mean, so Mo and Ali could be a real factor of spin. But since then, he's been non-existent. He just hasn't been. He's probably been the bat. And he's been a, he's been the, probably the biggest disappointment for England, in my view. Um, because, yeah, I don't know if you, what you think. But, I mean, I, I thought his issue with batting would be against the short ball. But he's been four times out to the Nathan line. I mean, that's the most disappointing thing. Well, I've never really thought of Moeen Ali as a proper batsman, mainly because his shot selection is is pretty poor. And when it's your, your your shot selection is that bad, because and you're still a you know an international standard batsman anyway, it's probably just because you don't have much range, as opposed to making bad decisions. And I don't think he has the range to make it as a Test batsman. I think he has plenty of calibre of scoring some runs down the order. Like I said, he is a, a comparable to a sort of a moderately effective keeper batsman in the sense that you can come in down the order a bit, but it tends to be found out a bit against good bowling. So I don't think that's, that's the main issue with Moen Ali. It's just that he's trying to cover for Ben Stokes, who is a much better batsman than he is. But yeah, I mean, you would have expected more from him with both bat and ball. I yes, mean, yeah, I would have done. Uh, Especially yeah, with no, the... I mean, he's, not, maybe not with the ball, because he's never really performed with the ball away from home, but he is a serious bowler, and he's not really bowled like it this series. Yeah, like I said, that, that's the um, biggest. I mean, Lyon, um, yeah, he's been the star. And um, Patrick Cummins, I mean, Imo hasn't taken massive amount of wickets. He's been exceptional, I think, um, with the ball. I mean, yeah, he, uh, I just sense Imo's coming off first change. In some ways, he feels like the leader of attack. He seems to rise to the occasion as he, you know, that spelly bolt to Darwood Milan on the... Um, Fourth evening in Adelaide. I mean, it was just like he knew that Australia needed a wicket. They would have had a bad day and a half where they, you know, they should have had the match wrapped up. But England right in at that stage with Milan and um, 
Ruth had that partnership. I mean, they were almost halfway there and seven wickets at hand. Mm. And he just bowled around the wicket and he just got through Milan's defences, which is also, you know, as good as the ball was. And a bit of a Dotman line. Milan just had to keep that out. I know, you know, it was tough, this quality bowling, but that's what that's what Ashes are decided upon. He just had to see it through to stumps. I mean, that would have been huge if they'd gone through that. I mean, who knows how it would turn out the next day, but... Yeah, that was such a decisive moment. and uh, But I've been massively impressed with Cummins. I mean, you know, he didn't play test for over five years. He was between his first and second test. And he had all his tests um, since he's come back. He's been very impressive. Uh, with bat and ball, should be said. Yeah, I still think, and we ought to wrap up this discussion now because we're still yet to get on to um, New Zealand against West Indies. <laughs> but uh, I, I still think England are capable of, of winning this series. They're just not going to happen because they're not going to bat well enough. And that's what it's going to come down to. If they get a 400-plus score on the board, they have the tools to beat Australia. But it, they need that, and they're not going to get it because their batting is not strong enough. No, I, I agree. Yeah, that that's, if they got if they were getting 400, even 350, 350, they'd be right in the game. Uh, because there, there's some... Quite good, you know. They're pretty good in the pace bowling most of the time. I mean, they've been a bit up and down, but uh, Broads, you know, maybe lost the up, but they, they kept it tight. Broad and Anderson. I mean, they've actually they've, they've really you know kept the they've been pretty challenging. And obviously, Wokes has proved as in the series gone on, and Overton had a good debut. I think a lot of people are saying he should have played in Brisbane, but you know that's that's all past now. Mm. But yeah, they just don't score enough. Well, what I, actually, I want to ask about when brought Alistair Cook. I mean, he's looked. Pretty object um, yeah. so far. Is this? Do you think that he could retire after the series because he's 150 tests? I think is coming up. He's done it all as a test player, and he's. I mean, I know he's not that old. He's only 32, 33. Hard to believe, but do you think that this might be it for him? We're starting to see um, why it might be, and I think I don't think he is going to retire. I think he's just too valuable, and I think they'll need to keep him around. Um, but we are starting to see why it, I think there's a lot of uh, weird kind of projections people made with Alistair Cook isn't there where he was when he was in the form of his life and he was getting hundreds for fun um, about how he could be in a position to get to break the records all the records um, Tendulkar's run scoring record hundreds record all sorts of things but the fact is that run scoring just doesn't carry on merrily through somebody's 30s almost all of the time uh, people like Tendulkar, Callis, uh, when these guys were batting as well as they were right at the end of their careers, they were the weird ones. And we got into this idea that that's just what happens when it isn't. Um, yeah, he could he could go at any time. He's We saw it with, uh, with people like uh, Clark, Graham Smith, really good players who just got to a bad run in their early 30s and then just called it a day. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen to Alistair Cook because I think England need him too much at the moment and I think they'll find a reason to keep him. Uh, but And obviously he should continue to play for as long as he can and I think they will they will keep him. But yeah, maybe, maybe so. Maybe this is uh, the beginning of the end for him and it would be tragic if that's the case because he's the, with the amount of work he's done for English cricket uh, with and without having a good team around him is just huge. And he deserves to have a, a you know a good finish. I agree that they can't afford to because they've got such a you know a weak. I mean, in a pretty weak top four or five. I mean, 
Emo, even if not his best form, that would hurt because he's, you know, he's got the experience and career. But I mean, I guess it's a question for he wants to continue. Maybe it's maybe it's. I think it's one of those things after giving up the captaincy. May, I know there's been some whispers that maybe Root hasn't been, you know, accommodating to him to in assist, you know, in, in discussions, team discussions, and there's been some other whispers that he seems a bit. You know, not switched on. I mean, who knows? Maybe people just reading into it. I mean, yeah, I'm actually surprised how young he was. I kept thinking he was about 35, but he is actually. I mean, in theory, he could go on for another five years, and he obviously does play one day cricket. Mm. So, yeah, right. It would maybe that it is a bit of a trap because it'd be the easy thing to do. Because I mean, that's what I, I my first reaction. Well, he's done everything as a test player. I mean, he's done it all. I mean, he's captain and plays one everywhere pretty much, and captain Ashes winning victories, and he's got the records and the runs and. But maybe, you know, that would be the entire thing, you know, he could, the admin could say, well, we need you because look how much our betting is struggling. You know, if you can, because, yeah, you're right, if they lost him and, you know, who's a Keating Jennings, I mean, who's looked, struggled so badly, I mean, it would be one of their weakest top orders, you know, for many years. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess, th- thinking about it, I've actually changed my mind, but I mean, saying, well, I think they'd have to really want him to continue on because they'd need that. It's a pretty young side, it, batting lineup in any case yeah I'll be honest every time you use the word whispers I just mentally replace it with bollocks I'll just yeah but there's something you know just in some articles there who who knows you know it's all (laughs) it's how how it is when Australia when England tour Australia all the you know they like people say time and again that it's not just you have to deal with the Australian team it's almost the media piling on and the because there's such interest in this series and the TV ratings have been great and the crowds have been great so that's been great but it's it intensifies the pressure and focus in England it's like front page news which I'm guessing it's not really in England because it obviously isn't as big um, in uh, England and you know it's really intense and all and all these issues come to the fore so that Johnny Bairstow headbutt sorry it's like, like dominated the news for about oh, two days God. I mean that was one of the um I don't know what to make of that. I, um, even Bevo Best, I described it, I think, in a recent article just yesterday. Was, I don't know what happened there. Who knows? Just okay. one final thing. One okay. final thing. Do you, so you'll predict, do you think it'll be 5 0 to Australia by going watch that you just think can't see England winning a test or no, not saving one? 4 um, 0 or 5 0, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so right, that's that. Can we please, please talk about New Zealand against West Indies now? Well, yeah, I stood off. I haven't been really been watching it. Um, I no, I neither have I. Some of it. All right. Well, sure. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> mentioned this on the message board, and I was, I was astounded by this uh, stat uh, that I don't think the West Indies played a test in New Zealand in the 1970s. I, I just felt West Indies have really played very few tests. In New Zealand, and I look at statistically, they've only won two tests in New Zealand since 1969. I think it's it's quite unbelievable. I mean, that's crazy. Um, that what, what about uh, maybe they've been uh, scared off and they haven't realised that New Zealand have actually adopted neutral umpires like the rest of the world? <laughs> yeah, the uh, 1980 series um, maybe left some scars, but yeah, even 86, 87, they actually only were able to draw one all with New Zealand and. It was another nine years before they played two tests. It's actually been quite amazing, our few. And, yeah, their, their, their record, you know, had a pretty bad um, defeat. I can only go by the reports and, you know, what Crick Info and the like were saying. But Neil Wagner, who's um, probably a bit of an underrated test bowler, just 
I think the match came in. He bounced them out on the first day. He just, you know, ripped, ripped through. They had a decent start. I think they were about two for 90, and then he took about five or six wickets in about a half-hour spell, and that was the match. And even though the West Indies actually batted a lot better in the second innings, they just had too much ground to make up. So mm. I think we're going to see and, a, a pretty similar story in this match. We've noticed that uh, New Zealand have batted first. They haven't really put together much of a score. Jeet Ravel got about 80, and that was about it. Um, Colin de Grandom got some runs. But uh, even though the West Indies have bowled okay, and they've put together a bit of a comeback uh, late on the first day to get themselves back in the game, they're not going to score enough runs to win a, a, win a game. Well, look, the West Indies test lot, I mean, they've actually, they've actually been not too bad as a test side the last 12, 18 months. I mean, they won a test in England. And yes, well. They won a test, a, a, I mean, in neutral conditions against Pakistan. Mm. I'd, I wouldn't write them completely off. I don't know. They've, they've probably been better than, you know, one assumes. I mean, in their test performances recently. And so I wouldn't write them off yet. Um Interestingly, though, I don't know who the captain is. Jason Holder suspended uh, for slow overrates. Oh, that's uh, a good question. Um, yeah, it's a good question. And it's a shame Darren Bravo. I mean, oh, I think he's a really quality batsman that, I mean, hopefully he comes back in because I think it'll start to look a pretty good batting lineup. Um, I said, well, uh, New Zealand, England, I guess England are touring New Zealand for a couple of tests in a couple of months. Um, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? They, don't, they normally uh, spend forever in Australia and then they're so completely. Um, like uh, broken by the experience, they don't play cricket again for another three months. Yeah, I was surprised by that when somebody told me. I thought well, they usually don't do. Yeah, it's an only two test series. Um, yeah, New Zealand aren't exactly playing um, stacks of tests these days. But do you uh, do you have any from what you? Who would you pick? I mean, I know it's a long way off. Presumably, it's larger the same squad. Do you think England could be bat better and win that a series in New Zealand? Uh, yeah. But partly because I think they won't need as many runs to beat them, I think. But that said, England have not done as well as you might expect in New Zealand in recent times. The 2013 series, for some reason, they could never bowl them out, even though they were opening the batting with people like Peter Fulton and Hamish Rutherford and other such uh, fairly average batting line of this New Zealand side. But England couldn't bowl them out, and they nearly lost that series. In the end, they ended up just drawing every game because neither side could get the other out. But, um, yeah, I think... England could have it in them to win that series. I think maybe they just want to go home and everything's been ruined and I could see them losing that series as well. Uh, but I think they ought to be able to cobble together enough of a batting lineup to at least take a test off them. And I think, I think it'll be a much closer series than this one. Yeah, New Zealand are pretty good at home in the last few years. I mean, uh, they beat Pakistan pretty convincingly last year and they're usually... You know, uh, pretty pretty good at home. Um, so it'll be a tough series. It's just um, it's only two tests, but I guess you know they're playing enough cricket to do England um, on their tour. But yeah, we'll see how we go. I suppose, but I guess New Zealand will be favourites still to win this test, depending on um, that in the series, depending on how this goes. Yeah. So do, do we want to talk about Sri Lanka and India? I didn't see really see any of that either. This third to the last couple of tests, um, I watched the first one, but a fair bit of first one, but not the last two. No, not really. Um, uh, um, it was again a, a series it, it reminded me the third test reminded me a bit of what used to be happening in the almost endless India-Sri Lanka matches that were being played about uh, seven or eight years ago where there was people like Sewag and Dravid and Tendulkar on one side 
uh, Sangakara and Jay Awardner on the other side, and no bowling. That was the third test, uh, but the and the but the ex- exception to the rule was uh, the second test in Nagpur, where Sri Lanka got belted like they did a few months ago at home, where things were a bit more normal. Yeah, yeah. Look, all things to see. I think Sri Lanka were pretty happy that the series turned out up. They were absolutely slaughtered at home by India, I and mean, that was. I think we discussed that in early podcast. That was one of those one-sided test series ever. Mm. And, you know, in two of the three, and they, well, they started off very well. They were probably a bit lucky in the first test, but they actually got some favourable bowling conditions, which I think they need desperately against India. And they actually ran through them in the first innings. Um, and I think that was a really, I'm not talking in the previous podcast, but that, that was actually a really detaining final day because India really came at them hard and almost skittled them. It was actually quite some quite verbals and confrontation, really good bowling. Mm. But just getting back to this third test, I mean, all I can say, I, I, I shouldn't have been surprised Sri Lanka meant about the day because it's the Ishan Sharma rule. <laughs> is because when whenever Ishan Sharma is in the side, it's almost like they just, they just don't perform. You think, oh, they're headed for victory. They've got just need four wickets in a day and they never can do it. It's like Whenever Isha Chum is inside, you see something like uh, Michael Clark scores a triple century, Brendan McCollum scores a triple century, <laughs> South Africa almost chased down 400, you know, well, when he's not at the side, they become like a really good uh, pace attack. It's like when India won the series. Like, actually, even in their throw this year, when um, Hanscom and Shaw Marsh batted for four hours, and, you know, Isha Chum was, no one Isha Chum was there. As soon as he was out for the final test, India's um, bowling was was terrific. So that's that's my theory on that match. So this is we think the Ishant Sharma rule is an ongoing uh, law of probability that um, if India are playing Ishant Sharma, then the opposition can bat well. <laughs> yeah, triple centuries galore, records are broken, or it's it's almost a almost a given. Yeah. Okay. Point taken. <laughs> But we've been, I've realised we've spent the last 20 minutes talking about cricket that neither of us have watched. So let's talk about what is happening in the world of commentary, because we've got an 11 put together, and one thing that we haven't really discussed at all is the quality of commentary that we've heard in this and previous Ashes series. Our 11 is going to be uh, the worst commentary 11. Uh, I was just saying, you know, you talk about, we talk about cricket we haven't seen, so I guess if you want to make the link, we're like Channel 9 commentary team, they... Apparently, they seem to have no idea about cricket that's played outside the Australian summer. Isn't and it I'm not strange? Joking. The bulk of this side is going to be people who come into commentary as an ex-player, where they're quite well informed about different players, different like strategies and tactics, and players from around the world that they've played against and been to. And they and people say, "Oh, you know, this guy's a really good commentator." And then three years, four years down the line. Like, there's been, then it's suddenly it's back to, you know, limp banter and almost, like, feigning for ideas about players that nobody in the commentary box has actually heard of before they came to do this series. And they're just reading out stat lines that they're given and try and make a, a, an objective assessment of them within half an hour of seeing them. It is a question why this does happen. Now, everything I say... I say as somebody who has also tried their hand at commentary, and you don't need to tell me that my commentary is poor, because it is. And I'm aware that commentary is hard. It is hard to talk about cricket and the things surrounding cricket for a day, in for entire sessions at a time. Um, 
even when on cricket web commentary, when I've had a go at it, I have no uh, responsibility. I have no uh, accountability to what I'm saying. I have no kind of follow-up or feedback at all. I have no uh, restrictions on what I can say. I can be as rude as I like or as uh, insensitive as I like or I can talk about um, my... I don't have a, a hand that feeds me that I have to avoid biting. Even with all that, people don't complain as hard about me as they do about these guys. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that is their job. And it's, I mean, I guess amongst many things... Um uh, especially the Channel 9 who feature quite prominently in this side, uh, that they should be should maybe just taking some idea of cricket around the world when they're not commentating for the eight months that they're, you know, they're not on Channel 9. Because it's only going for three or four months. You think you'd have some basic knowledge of, let alone Australia's playing overseas, but non-Australian cricket, because it is quite easily available on pay TV. It is, that, that's what uh, gets me. That's, it's... Uh, especially amongst Australian commentators. And the reason I think it happens is because these guys do not get judged on their commentary at all. I don't think there's any kind of use of the way that people talk about them. And this is true in every sport as well. Like if I was to talk about rugby, you can talk about people like Stuart Barnes who just almost get like this uh, like commentary tenure. Like There is no removing them. There's no way of... Uh, saying that what you were doing wasn't good enough. These people get fawned over. And that's why, presumably, when a commentator first comes in as an ex-player and they're quite interesting to listen to, suddenly over time they just revert to this laddish, matey culture that commentary has become. And they don't need to know anything. They don't need to um, be insightful. They don't need to... uh, have a good repartee with the audience and uh, connect with the audience because they're just set for life. Yeah, it is pretty rare to hear that a commentator has been dumped by a TV company. It did happen with Channel 9 a couple of years ago when they cut back and they've done it, only done it once or twice though in their whole 40 years of becoming the cricket commentator. And, you know, it's pretty much par for the course. That's the same commentators you hear all year round, you know, whether it's England, South Africa or you know, in Sri Lanka and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And, oh, look, some of them are quite good. Uh, but, yeah, it is, it's, it's harder to lose your job there than get a job, basically, these days. So it's, um, I should say, to what you said about how some ex-players start off great, then become complacent tail off. We should all, and this will come up um, with at least one commentator who, from day one, has been absolutely terrible. I mean, they're just <laughs> totally useless, but they've got jobs for life. But we'll get to that um, when we go through the side. Uh, I, I think we should split this up by commentary team and then we'll try and put together the 11 at the end. Yep. All right, we've, we've mentioned Channel 9 and probably the Channel 9 sickness, which is what happens to previously good or at least decent commentators that end up in this, um, shall we call it uh, the banda hole? Yeah, well, you can call it whatever you like. I mean, it's just, um, you know, just and to that be drivel. Um, to that end, we have James Brayshaw, Ian Healy, uh, Shane Warne, and Brett Lee. Yeah, two of those uh, actually were culled a couple of years ago, so I guess Channel 9 has improved a bit. Um, yeah, James Brayshaw, he was a state cricketer, uh, Sheffield Shield Group of South Australia in the 90s, and had reasonable success, but he, he basically got in this job because he sort of got into hearing 
Victoria uh, footy Aussie rules commentary and sort of entertainment programs became a big name from, and it was on Channel 9 and I guess they co-opted onto the career commentary and his style I mean on, on his his background is very self-indulgent backslapping you know not really not really about the game serious analysis and that, I think he's he was only there for a few seasons but his style I think was toxic in that Channel 9 commentary I couldn't stand him he was just Full of full of rubbish. It was just, and I think it really dragged down his, the commentary around him into this, you know, backslapping. Oh, you know, let's talk about pizzas or whatever. That, you know, what a, you know, this or that awesome. You know, Shane Wall mentions American Pie and he built a Shermanator, so we yeah. hear that for about half an hour and um, st- stuff like that. And yeah, he really dragged it down. And um, as for Brett Lee, who's uh, moved on, he, he was just boring. He was. He was dull as dishwater. He was uh, not really cut out for commentary. Although I think he was, I think I heard him in India for the one day. It's not not the most interesting of commentators. I want to make a point about Shane Warne, which is that yes. Shane Warne is the worst commentator I have ever heard in any sport. <laughs> now, what is it? I'm guessing it's about not his views, but his personality. Uh, it's Would both. Be right. He's it's, it's, he manages to strike every single box of irritation he could possibly manage and still finds new ways to annoy me. It is remarkable his consistency in being shit. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, Shane Warne absolutely loves the idea of being aggressive to the extent that he will substitute the word aggressive for being good. And then whenever somebody makes a decision or idea, or purpose that he doesn't like, he pretends that it's not being aggressive enough. So let me give you an example. Um, earlier on, uh, a couple of years ago now, um, when Australia were having a habit of collapsing in Austra- in Asia somewhere, I don't remember which Tory was talking about, because let's face it, there's been a few of them, he was saying sometimes being aggressive is about keeping the opposition out there and, and not giving up easily and being really uh, well-disciplined. No, Shane Warne, that is not what being aggressive is. That's being defensive, but what you meant to say was sometimes good play is about being really disciplined and keeping the opposition out there and putting the bowlers through their uh, overs. But he didn't allow himself to say that because he's just spent the last five years of commentary being borderline personally abusive about anyone who he doesn't regard as being aggressive enough, which of course is the easiest, in itself, that is the easiest possible position to take as a commentator because you want things to move on and move forward as opposed to what actually the best tactic might be at this point. And it's one thing to try and talk about what the best tactic might be at this point and decide it's aggression when that's obviously really easy. But if you always put that point of view forward to the point where you're confusing your own vocabulary as a goddamn commentator, then you have totally failed to understand what your job is, how you're supposed to do things, how you're supposed to say things, and why you're saying it in the first place. Shane Warne is a prick. Well, in response to that, I'll just let you know. Did you know he had a chat show on Channel 9? He was like a Michael Parkinson type show. I just thought I'd let you know that just to think if you ever saw that for about a few months in the mid-2000s that it wasn't terrible. So I'm just wondering how much you would hate that show. He's not my favourite commentator by any stretch. And 
See, he's like Griffin. I thought he's, his word of the day is intent. It's always about intent. Uh, I mean, especially if he's on the first session of the day. We've been doing it in Brisbane. He was going on and on about how Stark and Hazelwood weren't bowling with intent or aggression and, you know, England got off to a good start. There might be some truth to that, but he is, you know, like you said, monotonous on it. Figure gets me about him. Look, I don't hate him as much as you do, but yeah, I can see why people dislike him. But he's he's always those little. He always has a cheap shot at John Buchanan or Steve Waugh, especially John Buchanan. It happens like two or three times every Ugh. summer, and that 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 is basically because I think because you know he, he puts a lot for us. But I think it's a John Buchanan on an India tour said that Shane will need to lose some weight. You know, he probably wasn't fit enough, and you know he holds grudges and. <laughs> He hasn't forgotten that for 16 years. So, you're right, he's, you know, intent this and intent that. But, yeah, I guess we could both agree he's a deserved uh, member of this squad. Captain. And while I might point out, the only thing he has ever been fit to captain. Oh, you made him captain, yeah. I thought you were going to say somebody else was captain. Yeah, okay. Um. (laughs) We've got four Australians already straight in. We need to put some Englishmen in there as well. Now, for the most part, I think Sky's commentary team is generally pretty decent. I think Atherton and Hussain are good commentators. Um, particularly yeah. Nasser Hussain, I think, is pretty underrated. Um, I think uh, even uh, people like Rob Key, who are just sort of around the periphery, tend to be pretty all right at the best of times. Um, one person that sticks out like a sore thumb a lot of the time uh, even as, well, apart from Shane Warne, who has infected the Sky team as well, is Ian Botham. Yeah, this was probably my... This is the first person I thought of when thinking of this team. I mean, look, yeah. maybe there's more obnoxious commentators. Like, I think Ian Healy can be... When he's on a bad day, can be more obnoxious. But Ian Botham, he is... Uh, he, because he's been commentating for 20 years now, because I know he came to Australia and was commenting 98-99. He has never improved one bit. He is just... A lazy commentator, ill, an analyst, whatever you want to call him, because he just, just does he ever provide anything interesting on the game? He just no, says like, no, he's not. He, he, he sometimes wants extra slips because he's learned that that is he's learned over the years that that is a tactic that sometimes people use. He, I think actually, you could also get a funny way. It's a good insight into these personalities because um, you know when you listen to them so often and hear them so often, it, it sort of get why he was such a bad captain. Because he probably was just, you know, well, just go and attack and do your own thing. And he doesn't seem to really think tactically or interesting perspectives out of the game. And probably that's why to bring Mike Brewerly back. But um, he's just so, just a lazy, one-note commentator. Cracks the sads a lot. Mm. Sometimes it doesn't feel like, it just seems like he doesn't enjoy being a commentator. That much sort of seems to be rather doing fishing. But yeah, um, that is... That yeah, is- I, I, one thing that I quote, one thing that uh, is happening is that the other Sky commentators, particularly uh, Nasser Hussain, have started to take the mick out of him a little bit on air, and he often doesn't notice that it's happening. Even that, though, has started to get a little bit tiresome. Yeah, I mean, dude, there's so many, you know, um, I remember, I think it was, who was, was it Keating Jennings who got a century on debut in India last year? Um, I think, um, I'm, I'm not sure it was on debut, but he definitely did get one. Because I remember that was this is as classic both of commentary. He was on commentary. He was on ninety nine, and he was saying, "Oh, there's no way he's going to um, take a risk. You know, he's going to he's going to be patient here and this and that." And next boy, I think he plays a reverse sweep. Mm. It's his 
Kenzie Center is just like he has no sense of the game. He has no, yeah, that's why I mean, a sense of how the game's going or how, you know, what's the mood of the game is. Look, look, even somebody like Mark Taylor, look, I, you know, he's not, he's not a perfect commentator by any sense, but he's somebody, I think, as a captain, a very good captain. Yeah. He, he sort of can read the game very well. I think he knows the mood of the game when a side is drifting and all that. That's what, you know, that's part of being competent. Botham has none of that. No. He has zero of that. He is, provides nothing, I mean. So that's reason, why he's my pick. Yeah, and the reason why a lot of these guys end up on commentary, like we mentioned people like Atherton, Hussein, um, David Gower as well, although Gower is, you know, a bit pompous, is that they are... <laughs> is that they are ex-England captains and, and notable England captains who had the job for a long time and th- have spent their careers thinking tactically about the game. Uh, boycott, not boycott, we'll, we'll get to him. We will get to him. <laughs> Botham is there because he has this, like, this tenure, like I was talking about. He is there because he is the one person who 90% of English people know is a cricketer. And nobody else, certainly nobody knew, is in that bracket. So he is there because people have heard of Ian Botham. Uh, the one I tell you one thing: Ian Botham was the first cricketer I had ever heard of because Ian Botham got a mention on the Sooty Show back in the nineties. Yeah, and he's coasting on that reputation. That's the thing; he's never tried to prove himself as a commentator or an analyst. He just because he knows probably that's what you say. He's, I mean, I think it's been. I remember somebody saying in the nineteen eighties, like I think apparently parts of them now when um, soccer football, whatever you want to call it, dominates the sporting headlines, that he was, I think, the biggest head, uh, sporting personality in the, in the mid-80s in terms of England. He dominated the headlines, good or bad, yeah, yeah. which is what you say, and that's carried on through. Yeah, I mean, and, we, and I live in a country where the news of Man United having Jose Mourinho as manager is not even sports news, that is headline news. Uh, whereas the idea of um, any other sport having any result whatsoever getting onto headline news is just madness. But Man United changing their manager does. Yeah. More Englishmen. Uh, these two are on TMS, although they've both ended up on BT Sport for this uh, recent Ashes series, which we've talked about a little bit in the past. Jeffrey Boycott and Michael Vaughan, who are on here for very different reasons. Vaughan is there because, um, as... Brumby, uh, Boy Brumby on Cricket Web once defined the word Vaughan as meaning to go unpalatably bitter and unconsumable after their sell-by date. Um, such as, you'll never be able to have that milk because it's Vaughan. Uh, are you saying that because his career ended, you know, reasonably because of injury and poor form or because he's just that type? Well, after he retired, he just decided that um, he was suddenly this great innovator and much smarter than everybody else in the world of cricket, which is why he spends his time giving out low-grade trolling on Twitter, because he feels as though that makes him funny. And the reason why he spends his time on TMS either giving out low-grade banter, because he's so damn clever and personable, or uh, giving about these wise innovations about the game that are actually pretty flawed and lots of people have take issue with, as though he's the one that sees the light. He's convinced very much of his own uh, ingenuity and cleverness, and it's really quite tiresome. Yeah, I mean, um, just I think like we were discussing before we start the podcast, I mean, as I've, he's been on Channel 9's TV commentary a bit, and I, I don't mind him on that, but look, going back to on Twitter, I remember when he was on, I mean, when I used to be on Twitter, and um, I, yeah, I did find him really abrasive and a 
obnoxious, which is really surprising because, I mean, during his cricket career, he came across, you know, as very intelligent and, you know, sensible captain. He was innovative and he sort of, you know, took the game ahead from Australia in that 2005 series. Thinking, oh, you know, this is going to be really something interesting to, you know, um, listen to. And, yeah, on Twitter, I'm just being, yeah, quite obnoxious. And, he, and uh, he's got a bit of a pet hate of mine. I mean, he sort of knocks cricket a lot. Mm. I see this a lot with commentators. They seem to almost uh, oh, this man, this is about a separate discussion another time. But that's one of that's my biggest pet hates that people in cricket commentators and you know, knock cricket. They always say Test cricket's dying and this and that. Nobody goes. Almost they always sort of revel in it that we need to totally dismantle the whole game. You know, oh, it's in such a terrible state. And Vaughan's, as I recall, seemed to be along those lines, which made me made irritated me a lot. Maybe it's this uh, again. This commentator, uh, commentator job, total job security is a problem because it means they're not allowed to get bored of cricket for a bit and just go away and then maybe come back to a test series when it interests them and they can get back on. They have to be constantly on TV, constantly on Twitter, constantly on the radio, constantly talking about cricket, and so they're not allowed to just get bored of cricket for a bit. It has to be cricket's problem that they're bored. Yeah, that's actually, and that's a very good point. I mean, that should have been because, you know, well, with the Channel 9 commentators, half the year they're not doing it. Though. So, I mean, maybe with um, Sky, who, you know, usually are all year round. Yeah, he, yeah that, that is true. Maybe you sometimes get a bit bored and you take it out of the game instead of it's your own personal situation. But, um, yeah, but still, I don't have much sympathy because it's a pretty good life if you lead doing commentating around the world. I mean, I... I must admit, I find that with, um, this is, I don't know what you think of Jonathan Agnew, I found as somebody who's sour about the game. We used to not mind him, but just on Twitter and hearing his comments, he's always, I just, he's very negative about the game and always, mm. oh, you know, this and that. And it's almost like it's a burden that he's doing it, which I find quite repellent in a way. Oh, yeah. You because know, if, you, if you imagine how amazing a job this would actually be to have. Um, and there are some people who have made it on uh, that far who are quite seem to be quite grateful. I know not everybody likes Dagnall or people like Norcross on TMS, but these are people who have come through as uh, just being such big fans of the game that it comes on to it comes through in their commentary, and I appreciate that uh, to a lesser extent with uh, with uh, Blofeld as well. But um, that he's a different story. One more. Who was the other English? Yeah, was- boycott. Um, I go through uh, different um, phases with how I feel about Jeffrey Boycott on a regular basis, and at the moment it's not very positive. Um, it's mainly because, uh, again, when England are losing, or when uh, things, or when England aren't particularly playing very well, or he seems to have all the answers, you know. And if to Boycott all the answers is playing cricket as though it's 1965. That's his answer to everything. How he would do this, how he would do that, how Fred Truman would do this, or Ray Ellingworth would do that. It's just move, be aware that things are different to 50 years ago. If he gets that done, I'm all right with him. Uh, I'm okay with the fact that he speaks his mind, even though sometimes he's pretty wrong. Because you've got to be wrong sometimes. But it's not, you know, I'm, I'm sick of him talking about Yorkshire in 1965 as the apex of the sport. <laughs> Yeah, when he was playing and uh, they were winning titles galore. Mm. Um, I, look, I haven't heard, because I don't you know, really have the opportunity to listen to TMS um, or online. I think I should listen to the podcast a bit more. So I, I, I remember he was commentating in the uh, mid-night. He did do a summer with Channel 9 and he was pretty he was pretty good, but he is, you know, he's very, 
say, set in his ways. I, I guess, look, one of the positive things, that, I mean, I've, I've always found him his seats to enjoy the game, commentating on the game, mm. which I think a few others don't. I mean, he's maybe critical, but I think he genuinely does enjoy it. You know, loves commentating about it. Um, yeah, but I mean, look, everybody, you know, boycott his um, foibles, you know, going for his playing career, you know, sort of when he, when he and he was a captain briefly, and that didn't go too well. Um, he's yeah. always been a controversial character. Um, not yeah. not everybody's cup of tea, but a lot of people do love him. I presume he'd still have his fans on TMS. Yeah, I'll give you one example of um, one thing that really wound me up with him. In, uh, I think it was the 2015 tour when England were playing in Pakistan. Well, England were playing Pakistan in the UAE, and there was this absolutely dead track at Abu Dhabi where nobody could get much of a anything out of the anything with the ball at all. And Shah Malik made 200. Now, Shah Malik is not a great player. I, think, I don't think anybody would argue that. But he put together an innings that put Pakistan in a position to win the game, right? And getting 200 on a lifeless track. When, you know, not everybody was getting one. It turned out Alistair Cook did get one in the second innings. But um, uh, he was winning the game, right? And Boycott was talking about, or oh, is it Shah Malik wouldn't be able to put together innings like this in England, you know, when the ball's moving around and there's a bit of seam movement. He's never going to be able to bat this way. It's not relevant, is it? You know, I don't care that this wouldn't have won a county championship. Uh, I don't care that this uh, wouldn't have won... Uh, a test match in England in the summer against James Anderson. What I care about is the fact that he's winning Pakistan this game right now, and this test that's happening right now actually matters just because Ray Illingworth isn't captain doesn't mean that it doesn't count. I guess that's a bit like what we discussed about Jimmy Anderson now, if, you know, when people in Australia have uh, chip at him for his record at, um, in Australia, mm. you know, saying, oh, well, he's not doing this, and then you don't look at his overall record where he's taken, you know, over 500 wickets at 27, yeah. you know, making one of the greats. I mean, and, you know, like I said, that was because of maybe a bit of jealousy and he sort of riles Australians up. But, yeah, you're right, you can too easily say, think about all the negatives about a player. But say, you know, even look, even I've done it on the boards, but I've criticised David Warner, you know, that he's got a poor test record outside Australia, you know, that he's been, you know, didn't score centre for three years. But, and I was thinking, you know, when he did well in Brisbane, you know, especially, you know, going straight to victory, you sort of take for granted how good he's been, in, especially at the start of the Australian summer. He's like average 80, he averaged 80 in the opening two tests of the summer. Mm. And he almost always ensures Australia starts the summer well. And, yeah, sometimes, you know, we all do that, and I suppose commentators, we take things for granted. Forget about what people can do well, just look at things, their weaknesses. And I guess boycotts has a tendency more than most to do that. Yeah, but I guess the point I'm trying to make is that he was making a comment about a player's weakness in a match that was completely hypothetical, as opposed to talking about the match that he's being paid to talk about right now. Just being dis- totally dismissive of something that's happening, just because it's not cricket that your narrow-minded view sees as the best possible cricket, is mad. Well, I guess a lot of... And because it's dominated by English and Australian commentators. I think that happens a lot with commentators from both those countries where they can sort of dismiss, you know, when it's a side cricket in Asia, it's like, oh, well, it's all spin friendly, it's all flat pitches, that doesn't really count on real cricket like England or Australia. So I guess it's almost that national chauvinism. And I think that does come through a bit. And yeah, Boycott May was displaying that on that occasion. Let's talk about cricket in Asia then. 
because Ravi Shastri is also opening the batting. Like a tracer bullet. Uh, I can get always. I wonder if he's saying that when I see him on the um, they cut to him um, now he's coach. Um, I wonder if, if he read his lips or if he's just saying the same thing. Yes. I suppose before um, we, I, I suppose before we say anything else, we should check that whether or not we're allowed to dis, like, talk badly about Ravi Shastri or the BCCI is going to come shut us down. My memory, just thinking of Ravi Shastri, I, you know, I get this right. In the 2011 World Cup final in New Sri Lanka. Remember, was there some sort of? He was hosting the coin toss, and it was like there was some sort of dispute over who won the toss. <laughs> I just remember his mannerism. He said, "Oh, it's like it's like a bit of World Wrestling Federation." The way he was um, hosting it, it was like um, P.T. Barnum, you know, the way he was doing it. It was actually so funny. I'm sure that's my memory of it. I mean, I don't mind him too much. I actually don't mind the... um, I'm a bit of a lone wolf here, probably, to start, but I I don't mind the Indian commentary, maybe because I've had to deal with Channel 9's commentary so often, and um, it does seem so bad, although their bias is fine. But, yeah, I I can see why he's a bit idiosyncratic, but... um, well, he's been very successful as coach, I can say that much, but, uh, yeah. I just find it a little distasteful how you can move between the roles of official coach, BCCI employee elsewhere, publicist for the BCCI, and melting the role of publicist for the BCCI into official commentator for a broadcaster as well, so seamlessly. Yeah, well, they're switching between com- uh, coaching and commentary. The quickest, I mean, I know this is a bit different, but the quickest one I can know was David Lloyd, who was coach of the England 1999 World Cup side, and they got knocked out infamously in the first round. And yeah. I think a week later he was commentating on the matches. I remember he was commentating <laughs> the matches because he'd, he'd, he'd quit the role. So it was like, what a, what a switch. Was he, was he been commentating if he was still playing? I We've, we're really going to have to wrap this up soon, so we're just going to go through a few names very quickly that uh, you said sure. to me are going to be on this list at the start. Sean Pollock. Yeah, you. Were, yeah, I think you brought him up as. Yeah, look, he's. <laughs> I don't know what there's much to say because that, that's the issue. He's, he's just a bit dull. Yeah. I don't know how many he's not like obnoxious or inept, but yeah, he's not the most captivating of commentators. I, I heard a bit of him during the. England South Africa series. Sometimes you forget. Um, was he commentating? Because he doesn't really stay in the mind. I guess. Look, there's worse around. I'm not. I'm not. You know. But yeah, Obviously, I can see why. We, we mainly included him is because these captains are uh, these, these commentators tend to be ex captains, and so we we're a bit short of bowlers. Um, Greg Ritchie. Oh yes. Oh, Greg Ritchie. Yes. Now, uh, just very quickly, he was um, he was a Test batsman for Australia for a fair while in the mid '80s, and. I think about why is it up ready? Look, he probably wasn't the worst around, but he had this thing where Channel 9 were almost grooming him as um, the sort of replacement for Richie Benno's hosting their commentary, which seems crazy in hindsight because Richie did it for another 20 years until Mark Nichols did it. And, he, and the thing was, when he took it over, because he was known as quite a jokester and a um, bit of a controversial one, you know, in his own way, but it was like this very serious. Reserved. He was almost like he was trying to imitate Richie Benno, and like being very, you know, very gravitas to him. He's like, oh, you know, he really take notice of what he says. And it just seemed so odd when he was doing the um, host, you know, hosting the. And you can actually see on YouTube if you check up Australia ninety five ninety six of one days, you can see him hosting. Just very formal and very odd, you know, why he was doing that. And then he was. 
a year later, he was in involved in an incident, and he might have continued on an incident at the um, airport where I think he did a racial slur, and that was pretty much the end of his career. But yeah, it was just like such an odd. And he was what the next Richie Benno, really Greg Richie. But anyway, so that's why I thought I'd mention him. And one last one that was uh, mentioned to me on Skype earlier is uh, Max Walker, uh, under the basis that you hate Max Walker. <laughs> well, I did. Well, um, I didn't say I hated him. I mean, as a because com- I remember growing up, I just found him. He was his commentator on Channel Nine for about five years. Late Max Walker, I should say. Sadly, passed away a couple of years ago, but. Yeah, he was commentator in the late 80s, and I just, he just annoyed the hell out of me a bit, actually, as a commentator, you know, because he was known as a real character. He made a fortune out of all these books, you know, famous comedy tales, and he sort of brought that into his commentary. It's like some sort of um, storyteller. He was trying to be lyrical in his commentary, you know, put down your glasses and hit a boundary, and, yeah, I just, I was glad when they moved him off him um, um, in the early 90s. So, yeah, it wasn't a favourite of mine. Our final 11 is Jeff Boycott, Ravi Shastri, and Michael Vaughan, Greg Ritchie, James Brayshaw, Ian Botham, Ian Healy, Sean Pollock, Shane Warne, Brett Lee, and Max Walker. We do have to wrap this up, though. Before we go, yes. we are going to do a play of the week. Okay, you go first. It's James Anderson's five foot, just because I needed something. I needed something to cling on to. And even if hope can... Uh, kill you in the end at least it's better than not wanting to be interested in what's going on at all so it is james anderson's five for i am glad that he showed that england have a reason to be here they have a reason to be playing this series it shows they have some good players they have some key tools that they can use where they can have a session they can have a day um and that i need that (laughs) well uh, my actually the thing was um, I think I actually don't know his name, but I've got to give it to the Adelaide groundsman of Adelaide Oval because oh, I can't remember his name. I was from the TV, but I thought the Adelaide pitch this day and night it was an excellent one. It had bounce, pace, swing. Uh, if you stayed, you could stay and play the long innings as Sean Marsh showed. And I guess what I'm saying is, I mean, he's not a well-known name, but. I think the Adelaide pitch for the last few years is miles better than in the 80s and 90s where um, Les Burdett was, had some, for some baffling reason, had some great reputation. The child, Richie Benno used to drool over him in his pitches. Even though he used to produce about seven draws in a row of those boring pitches on earth. Mm. So kudos to the Adelaide grounds. Day-night cricket in Adelaide has been an absolute revelation for that, for, for that ground, hasn't it? Because now, so all of a sudden, it's producing the most exciting test match of the summer almost every year. And a great event. It's like people were doubtful because it was popular anyway, but with the new ground expanding to 50, over 50,000 and the night, yeah, like I said, day and night, it's actually improved on something that was already great. I mean, it has been a sensational success and great for TV ratings too, that you can watch in prime time. That was massive ratings um, here, which is great for cricket. Yeah, it's been a great all round success. Because um, even five years ago, you would say that. You know, Adelaide Test match is one where you bat first and you're almost guaranteed 450. And now it's not yeah, just yeah, exactly. Yeah. That said, uh, <laughs> I still don't think uh, England would have got many runs on it. Um, maybe, maybe I guess on the old Adelaide pitch, I, I could see them maybe getting 350 out. You know, early on day two, I think they would have done a bit better, but oh, yeah, probably not quite good enough. 350. Thank you for your generosity. 
You know they haven't scored above 353 since the 2010-11 tour. That's their highest score Ugh. in the last seven tenths in Australia. They've got, to, you know, they've got to try and at least get above that. They the can try. The they can definitely try. Thank you very much for joining us for this edition of the Cricket Web Podcast. You can join the conversation best by coming to get to know us at cricketweb.net forward slash forum. We thank SoundCloud for hosting us on soundcloud.com slash cricketweb and Jonathan Coulton for the music you are hearing right now. We hope to see you next time and it's goodbye.